Joining me on the program this morning is New Zealand economist Dr. Martin Lally, who published a paper recently called The Costs and Benefits of COVID-19 Lockdown in Australia. That analysis estimated that Australia's GDP loss due to lockdowns is $160 billion. Martin, thanks for coming on the show. So how did you arrive at that $160 billion figure? Well, um, the... The first problem that you face when you try to do this kind of analysis is you've got to ask yourself, what would the deaths have been if you had locked down and what would the deaths have been if you hadn't locked down? Now, we know what the deaths are as a result of Australia's lockdown policy. About a 1,000 people have died to date. That's clear enough. What's much less clear is how many people uh, would have died if Australia had not pursued a, um, a lockdown policy. That is to say, they have pursued moderate mitigation policies, perhaps of the Swedish variety, but they hadn't stopped people from going to their jobs. And um, the data source I've used to try to estimate that is European data. And the reason why I've used European data is that there's very strong evidence that apart from Europe, um, COVID deaths that have been recorded um, have been massively uh, under-reported under um, in parts of the world other than Europe. And the reasons for that are twofold. One is autocratic governments don't want to look bad, so they lean on the relevant um, authorities to underreport the figures. And the other is just in parts of the world, even without governments trying to lean on the authorities, they're just so overwhelmed by um, the problem and lack of resources that they just simply, um, without seeking to calculatedly undercount, they just don't pick up all the all the debts. So data from the likes of India is clearly going to be massively undercounted um, for reasons of just simply being overwhelmed and data from the likes of Russia um, is going to be massively undercounted because the government is leaning on the authorities to, um, to underreport the figures. So I, I use European data. And the thing that's most striking about the European data is that it doesn't seem to make any difference whether you lock down or not. Um, the death rates didn't seem to, um, in statistical terms, uh, vary um, significantly according to that. And that seems on the face of it surprising, um, but there's a, there's a clear explanation for it. The um, countries that locked down in Europe, um, they moved like them. If, if lockdown's going to work, there's no point locking down when huge numbers of people are already infected. That, that's pointless then. You've got to move early, that, that's clear. And secondly, most countries in Europe, um, unlike Australia, they're, they're not islands. Um, trying to stop the transmission of the virus across a border when there's no um, body of water, not even a, a fence line. Mm. Um, parts of Europe, the border runs through a village. Um, there's, there's no no borders that can stop the transmission of the virus. So um, what does that leave us with? Um, well, what that leaves us with is um, what, did, what did differentiate deaths in Europe if it wasn't lockdown policy? Well, you can find some variables that, that are important, and that makes sense. 
But it's very clear in Europe um, and elsewhere, if you're an island, deaths are per million of population, they're, they're much lower. Yeah. Iceland and um, Cyprus have quite low death rates in Europe, um, as does Greenland. We see the same in, in the Americas, um, throughout the um, Americas. Death rates are high with one startling exception, the Caribbean. Lots of those islands have very low death rates. And epidemiologically, you can see why that's the case. It's easier to seal yourself off if you're an island. The second thing we're seeing is in the European data, what matters is population density. Countries with high population densities have higher death rates. And that's for obvious, obvious reasons. We're also seeing countries with high populations in absolute terms um, also have um, high death rates. So what we can glean from the, um, the European data is we could predict or estimate how many deaths Australia would have suffered um, if it had followed a lockdown policy by finding these variables in the European data that um, tell us why death rates are sometimes high, sometimes low, and then putting into that model the relevant numbers for Australia. So you put into that model the fact that Australia is an island, the fact that its population density is whatever it is, quite low, the fact that its population is whatever it is. You put it into these, these models and outcomes are a prediction. Now, depending upon which countries you use, um, you're going to get different results. If you use just the European data, then what happens with European data is that despite the fact that um, being an island does matter to your death rate, there's only two islands in the European data, um, there's Iceland and Cyprus, and both of them have low death rates, but that's not enough countries for that to come up as what's called a statistically significant um, variable. But if you use data from the Americas, that is from the American continent, or you pull the data from the American continent in Europe, then Ireland comes up as statistically significant. But the Americas data, and in particular, the data from south of the Rio Grande, that's probably seriously undercounted. So there's pluses and minuses mm. in, in using um, the Americas data. So depending upon which of these data sets you use, do you use Europe, do you use the Americas, or do you use the, the pool data, you get a prediction for the Australian um, uh, deaths um, if Australia um, had, um, had not locked down, had followed a mitigation policy of something between about five and 18,000. And then you say to yourself, well, um, how do we um, generally use that, that kind of information? Is it, do we just focus on deaths? Well, no, we don't. The, the established methodology amongst health economists and, and health uh, professionals who are looking at these kind of issues, and, and the general issue that they're facing is, which health interventions make sense? Where should we spend money and where should we not spend money? This is a, a standard problem, and the, there's an area in which it has very high profile, and that comes to which drugs should a public health system buy. There are some drugs that are very, very um, useful in dealing with particular problems, but they're just extraordinarily expensive relative to the number of people who are going to um, uh, benefit um, from it, and they just get knocked out in public health systems. They're just too expensive. 
other drugs, less expensive that they're, they're given the tick. So there's an accepted methodology for addressing this question, which health interventions make sense. And what you do is you take the number of lives that you expect to save as a result of some health intervention. It could mean buying a drug, but in this case, it means do, do we lock down or not? And you multiply that by the number of life years that are saved. So um, the average person who died from COVID, the, the life expectancy of them was, was pretty high. I'm sorry, the remaining um, residual life expectancy of them was quite low. They were quite old people in general. Um, so statistical analysis there indicates that these five to 18,000 Australians would on average have about another five years of life left. And typically people who die from COVID, they've got all kinds of other existing um, conditions as well. And so even if they lived another five years, it wouldn't be the life years of uh, an extremely healthy mm -hmm. person. So you degrade that a bit further to allow for that. And that gives you about what's called 70,000, up to 70,000 quality adjusted life years that would be saved. So that's the 18,000 that would be at most lost under a mitigation policy minus the thousand that you'd lose under a lockdown policy multiplied by, by five and then degraded by about 20%. So you get about 70,000 quality adjusted life years that would be saved if you followed a lockdown rather than a mitigation policy. And then the next thing you have to say, well, what's the cost of doing this? Well, the, the big thing is all the GDP losses that result from lockdowns rather than mitigation. Now, to get the GDP losses as a result of this whole, this whole thing, you go back to December um, preceding the commencement of the, um, of the pandemic, so December 2019. And at that point, the Reserve Bank of Australia and various other people are predicting what GDP growth is going to be in Australia over the next few years. 3% in this year, 2% in this, blah, blah, blah. And then you roll forward um, a year to December um, to, to 20, and you see the figures are quite different. So the GDP for 220 is not the plus 2 or 3% it was projected to be. It's considerably lower, and the numbers running from there um, uh, to some extent, you're, you're climbing back up the hill. So the result is there's two GDP paths, one without the pandemic like this, and then the other one, there's a dip, and then it gradually catches up. And it takes years for catch-ups to happen, and this is normal in, in economic shocks. It isn't just that you lose GDP at the time of the problem, but it takes years to make up. So you figure out those GDP losses, and they run to about 400 billion in Australia by comparing these two parts. Now, some of those GDP losses would have happened anyway, whether Australia had locked down or not. Um, you've lost all the foreign tourists anyway coming into Australia. There's some things that you are selling to the rest of the world you're not going to sell, et cetera, et cetera. So what percentage of that 400 billion is due to Australia locking down versus not locking down. It's about 40%. So your GDP losses are about 160 billion as a result of locking down versus, uh, versus not locking down. And then your quality adjusted life years that you've saved is, is up to about um, 68,000. And you take the ratio of that, um, that, um, 
that uh, figure of about 160 billion, mm-hmm. and um, you divide it by the about 70,000 quality adjusted life years. Now, there's a further complication. The data I'm referring to is the estimate of the lives Australia would have lost if it followed a lockdown versus mitigation policy. That's just up to December the 30th of last year. Now, why stop there? Well, you stop there because from that point on, how many deaths you're going to suffer is governed by how quickly you get access to the vaccine. So if you're Britain, the great success story, the deaths pretty quickly tailed away from there. Mm-hmm. Um, United States, they haven't been doing it anywhere near as quickly. Other countries, well, they've barely started. Here in New Zealand, the proportion of the population that's been vaccinated is a very, very small. Um, I'm in the so-called high-risk group, a 65-plus person, and I haven't had the telephone call yet to invite me in for my um, my session, and that would be several weeks away. So this experience, uh, once the vaccine arrives in December 220, what happens after that doesn't depend on whether you're an island or what your population density is. That statistical model now is that's no longer useful. What matters now is the how quickly the vaccine um, kicks in. So you've got to allow for some extra deaths from December the 30th last year through to whenever the vaccination program um, does the job. And um, supposing you, you you double the, the deaths that would be suffered as a result of it taking a while for the vaccination vaccine to arrive and the job to be done, you double it. So instead of at 70,000 quality adjusted life years, you lose from um, mitigating rather than locking down, maybe it's something like double that. So you've got 160 billion as your losses, you divide by this 70,000 times two, and um, you um, you get a figure of uh, about a million. So you're spending a million dollars to extend the life of one person by one year. Now, that million has to be compared to the normal figure that health economists and health people use when they decide which health interventions are a good idea. And the normal rule is about $100,000 in Australia. Prepared to spend $100,000 to extend the life of one person for one year. Well, what we've Australia has effectively done with with COVID is to spend 10 times that. Um, So that's essentially the the, the nub of my analysis. Now, there's lots of things that you can quibble about. You can say, well, you haven't done this, you haven't done that. Some of the things I haven't taken account of, they're they're not terribly significant. So, for example, what about the medical costs? Um, If you lock down, you save all these medical costs. Well, you don't save much. medical system, most of those costs are sunk. You're paying the doctors anyway, whether they're dealing with COVID patients or just having a quiet day. The buildings and equipment you're using, well, you bought it all anyway. Um, The the marginal costs there are are pretty small. There's also a lot of discussion about people called long haulers. They don't die, but um, they don't recover quickly either. And they recover very, very slowly with quite debilitating conditions gradually tailing off to zero over a protracted period. There's been a lot of publicity about them. Um, the numbers are relative to deaths, quite quite small. Um, so they don't appreciably um, change the story. Now, on the other side, there are lots of 
um, further problems resulting from lockdowns that haven't been picked up in this analysis. Um, it's quite anxious. A lot of people are quite anxious. Lock them down. Everyone's quite anxious. They're worried. Um, it's difficult to talk about anything else. Um, so that's a, a problem that results from lockdowns. In addition to, you might save lives. You do save lives, but you inflict some degree of anxiety on the whole population. There's also the loss of educational um, opportunities for people. They're pulled out of school. That that's that's a minus. Um, People are unemployed. I mean, these GDP losses naturally lead to um, employment losses. And um, by and large, people don't like being unemployed. Um, even if you give them money and compensation, um, it, the, most people like going to work. The social interactions, the, the sense they're contributing to society. Um, and if they're unemployed, it's not just a sense of being depressed. It's also, we know unemployment leads to problems like crime and addiction and all these things that just mm. flow out into the future. Now, I haven't, quantifying these things is really tough, but you don't need to because they just make the situation worse. So if the effective cost that's being paid by locking down um, rather than mitigating is a million per um quality-adjusted life you saved, allowing for all these other things I've mentioned, which potentially can be quite large, that just makes the situation even worse. It makes the argument for lockdown even weaker mm. um, than it previously was. And can we extrapolate from that figure of 160 um, billion. billion in GDP loss, can, can we extrapolate that over a um, short, medium and long-term period if these lockdowns were to, say, continue for another 12 months? Well, that $160 billion has been arrived at by looking at the forecasts that the Reserve Bank of Australia made in December 2019 before that it was realised that we had this problem, uh, or rather we realised it was going to be a problem for anything other than China, um, and, and their forecast 12 months later. So presumably the RBA is allowing in the latter figures, they've had 12 months of seeing what's happened with these rolling lockdowns in Australia. They're presuming, presumably allowing for the fact that there will be more of these things in the future. Um, it's, they can't be unaware of that fact. So I presume they're already allowing for that. So that $160 billion is, in effect, the RBA's estimate of the cost of these things not just for what happened in 220, but the possibility there'll be some more of these lockdowns in the future. Now, they may be underestimating that, they may be overestimating it, but they're already picking that up, I believe. They're making some, some allowance for it in their figures. One of the other alarming things is the lack of general health checkups during these lockdown periods. We don't know what the long-term cost of this will be for society and our health systems yet. Uh, it's a bit like putting a kink in a hose, and when you unkink it, all those things like delayed cancer screenings could come pouring out. Yeah, that's an, another point that um, just emphasises the, the problems with the lockdowns. It aggravates the, 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 the situation. But there is, to some extent, some counterbalance, that if Australia or any country doesn't lock down and suddenly all these COVID people arrive at hospitals they may crowd out other people 
being given medical attention. So that works on the other side. So it's difficult um, trying to um, assess the, the pluses and minuses of that one. Mm. In the short term, the, the net effect of these two forces, so one of them is lockdowns will lead to disruption of the health system. So a person with cancer doesn't go into a hospital and, and get their cancer dealt with. But on the other hand, if you... If you don't lock down, then people who need treatment get um, crowded out by the hospitals just being too preoccupied with all the COVID people. In the short term, whatever the net effect of that is, it, it appears to be close to zero because there's two ways of counting COVID deaths. You, you look at the autopsies and every autopsy that says died of COVID, you put that in the list. There's a quite different way of assessing COVID deaths. What you do is you, you predict pre-COVID using a model for the country of what the deaths, the total deaths you'd expect over 220 based on whatever the characteristics of the country are that the historical data leads you to predict what the deaths would be in 220. And then you take the actual deaths in 220 and you see if they're more or less. And this is called excess deaths, okay? The deaths that you actually suffered from whatever cause minus your prediction of what the total deaths were going to be. So that difference, excess deaths. And for the European data, it's about the same as the numbers of people who died from COVID as per the autopsies. So it looks like the autopsy count is about right. It doesn't pick up the effect, the two effects that we're talking about here, but that suggests that they're about netting out because they those other effects would be picked up in this excess right. deaths measure. But all that does is tell us about the deaths in 220. person who misses out on cancer screening in 220 in a lockdown situation and who dies many years later as a result of that, we're not going to know about those excess deaths for, for years to come. So that's an open question. Are governments starting to actually pay attention to these figures that are coming out or are they just not interested? I, I have made my best efforts to communicate my views to the um, health authorities in New Zealand, to the people who are um, the academics who are advising them. Um, and through the media, um, uh, it, it does not seem as if um, governments, the government in New Zealand um, or Australia for that matter, or, or generally is very interested in this kind of cost-benefit analysis. And, and there's a good reason for that, that if you make the decision in March 2020 to lock down, um, the last thing you want is to have to say six months later, we've made a mistake. I don't know if that's a good reason. Well, when I say it's a good reason, I mean that in the sense of it explains, it's good in the sense of it explains why people act in the way I do. I don't I mean that it's uh, I understand. It is, uh, good in, in the normal plain English sure. sense of the word. So having made the decision to lock down, governments are not, interested ex post in seeing whether that's a, um, a good idea or not, because any analysis, in my view, that, that looks at this would show that they overreacted. Um, so that kind of analysis is, is not going to be interesting. And remarkably, um, every 
government in the advanced world has a, a government entity that deals with financial issues and gives them financial advice. In New Zealand, it's called the Treasury. In Australia, it's called the Treasury. So you might have expected that these uh, government entities would have supplied advice to government at the time the decision uh, was made. Um, and interestingly enough, um, the first analysis that I saw, quantitative analysis I saw um, on this pros and cons of locking down was published um, in New Zealand um, on the day we locked down. And it was published by um, three uh, medical academics in New Zealand, uh, Professors uh, Blakely, uh, Wilson and Baker. And they made estimates about the numbers of people who would die if we locked down and if we didn't. And they, they didn't know what the GDP losses were going to be. They had they estimated that given their difference in estimates that New Zealand should be prepared to spend up to two and a half billion um, to um, avoid those debts. If, if lockdowns didn't cost any more than two and a half billion, then it'd be a good idea. And when I saw that, I emailed them and I said, well, you're two and a half billion is, is going to be dwarfed by GDP losses. And um, Tony Blakely emailed me back to say that well, they didn't have figures on that and they urged the government in their paper to carry out this kind of analysis. So their paper wasn't so much a, you should do this. It was instead saying to the government, look, here's our guess about the numbers who will die with and without lockdown but we need some detailed analysis on the costs and over to you, government. Now, my understanding is that no such analysis on uh, the economic costs of lockdown versus no lockdown was performed by the New Zealand Treasury. Um, so the government in New Zealand made their decision to lock down with only one of the two critical pieces of information. They had some estimates about deaths if they didn't and didn't, did or didn't lock down, but they didn't have any analysis on from Treasury. And why is it the Treasury didn't supply that information to them? Um, that's, a, that's a question only, only Treasury can answer. There's an extraordinary pressure on governments uh, from the media right now. It's gotten to the point where they're reporting every case they're answering to a very savage media and I wonder if these politicians just want to escape unscathed with as few deaths as possible. Well, the media coverage of this issue is, is very, very interesting and um, two very startling features of the media coverage um, are, are worthy of note. Um, the first is that whilst deaths from COVID are very well reported. What's not reported is what those deaths represent relative to the population of the country. Mm. So you can't sensibly inform people about the scale of a problem in, say, the United States by telling them that 5,000 people died today. We need to know what's that relative to the US population. Similarly, if we're told that 5,000 people died of COVID in India yesterday. 
That sounds an awfully large number, but you have to relate it to the total population of the country. And never, never have I seen in the mainstream media anyone who takes these death numbers and relates them to the population of the country. No. The, the second thing that's kind of startling about the media coverage is that um, you need to relate the deaths from COVID not just to the population of a country, but what's the normal death rate? So let's take the world as a whole. Um, what's the population of the world? It's about 80 billion. Now, how many people die every year? in the world. Well, it's about 0.7 of 1%. And 1% of 80 billion is 800 million. And 0.7 of that is about 500 million. So about 500 million people um, die every year in the world. And how many people have died of COVID in the year and a bit? Uh, well, the reported numbers are about um, 3 million. Mm. But that's likely to be very heavily underreported in large parts of the world, um, in Asia and Africa and South America and so forth. As opposed to not 3 million, it's something considerably um, larger than 3 million. It's 10 million. Well, 10 million is still pretty small relative to the 500 million people who die in the normal course of a year in the world. And nowhere do you see in the, um, the, the media reporting on this relating of these COVID numbers to these other numbers. Now, that to me, it, it can't be oversight. No journalist is so foolish that they're, they're unaware of those two things, that 5,000 dead in New Zealand in a day couldn't be the same as 5,000 dead in India in a day. Surely they, they understand that, that you've got to relate it to the difference in the populations and similarly to death rates elsewhere. So that looks like a, a calculated policy of um, inflaming um, the situation, of making it seem worse than it really is. I cannot see any, any excuse for failing to do those two basic comparisons. And the other thing that's been omitted from the very beginning is information about the people who have actually died, whether there are comorbidities, whether this person is 100, whether they were 300 pounds. You'd think that this additional information at the very least would help calm the public down. But, you know, it's just another COVID death, another COVID death. Yes, I think that's a third failing of the media. I guess there's a, a whole list of failings and that, that probably at number three, that the, the media have by and large not um, pointed out that most of the people who are, are dying of COVID are, are people whose residual life expectancy is, is perhaps five years anyway. Mm. See, nobody ever actually, this is, I guess, just the choice of language. Nobody dies of a disease. What happens is that you, we all die in the end. That's, that's a certainty. What a disease does is it reduces our uh, remaining lifespan. That's the right way of putting it. And 
there's a big difference between a person who's 80 years of age, who's only going to live another month, dying of COVID, and a person who's 20 dying of COVID. They're, they're two quite different things. Yeah. But if the media just keeps talking about deaths as if they were like road accidents, mm -hmm. the average person who dies on the road is about 40. They're, they're just typical. They run across the whole spectrum. But COVID isn't like that. Uh, by and large, the people who are dying are people whose residual life expectancies are, are not very long. And in the standard methodology that I described to you, that's taken account of. You don't just take the number of people whose lives have been saved as a result of lockdown and multiply that by the residual life expectancy of these people on average. So the standard methodology allows for that. Um, so just reporting on deaths um, is 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 additionally irresponsible because it doesn't recognise this very important feature of COVID that these are people by and large with quite short residual life expectancies. And the argument for spending huge sums of money to, to stop that happening is then even weaker. That's exactly right. Uh, Martin, I'll let you go. Thanks very much for your time this morning. It was um, very beneficial to have those numbers explained and hopefully we can start to see some politicians act on it. Thanks, Martin. Thank you, Nick. Cheers.